We're going to read from Galatians 6, verse 14 down to verse 18, uh, focusing specifically on verses 16, 17, and 18. So hear the word of God. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We add our amen to that. As the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord alone endures forever. May he bring our blessing to that. Well, children, I did say to you that you would be hearing a couple rules that are in our house. But, you know, we all have this one standing ideology that works over every one of our households. And that is this phrase, my house, my rules. There we are. (laughs) I've often found we echo those things when we're mostly playing board games. And it's just a reality that when it comes to playing board games, how many of us play them according to the actual rules. We all have our slight variants and our way of playing them so that it's a bit more amiable within our homes. Perhaps some of you are like us, that there is one game that is most often forbidden from homes. Does anyone know what that would be? (laughs) Monopoly, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Risk is a close second, those of you who know some of those things. It's also my house, my rules when it comes to the remote control. How many of you have that as well, too? And it isn't that everyone gets to play with it. You you have the same kind of sentiment when it comes to workplaces. And here's where we'll get a little more serious. And that is sometimes we get into those workplaces and we're under a set of rules by the employer. and and, And we immediately find ourselves wrestling with that slogan, my house, my rules. It's fine when it is my house. But, you know, in our workplaces, it's no longer our house, is it? It's somebody else's. And that's where we start finding conflicts. Same thing happens with church. Churches have a sentiment of that reality. Hopefully, their rules are based on Scripture. We like to think that our form of government is... And it is something that we call all our members to accept. But there is a sentiment where you come into this church, we do membership differently, we do the Lord's Supper differently, and we believe we are following uh, the way of the Lord in those things. And sometimes people will say, I don't like the way their rules go. We have in our house, uh, it, it may sound like one rule, but it's two standing rules pertaining to words that aren't allowed. I don't know if some of you have that sort of thing. But children, I said you'd hear that there's two rules in our house. One rule is you're not allowed to say this word. You're not allowed to say stupid, especially if it's directed to someone. And it was very early on, and we're thankful when we hear our children as they're growing up, they don't use that word. They might use some other words that are very 
similar to it, but uh, they're less offensive. The other word that we have as a rule in our house that you're not allowed to say, and that is shut up. And the reason being is that they are offensive. They are disrespectful. They are inappropriate. And they're not met with much grace, are they? They sound harsh, don't they? Even when you say them. Rules are there. Whether growing up in home or coming into a new environment, there are rules to follow. Sometimes those rules may not be right and we have a a legitimacy maybe to to address that depending on the relationship we have with people. Some don't make sense to us. I have found uh, when it comes to government, uh, I sort of agree with Tacitus. I know some of you may not know who he is. Look it up on Google and just learn about him. It's a wonder he survived all the Roman emperors that he did. But he made the statement way back in the time of Rome that the more laws a government uh, enacts, the more corrupt the government is. <laughs> it's something to uh, you know, consider. And we might think that even in some of our place, uh, places of social settings and that. But you know, the Christian life is no different. There are rules to Christianity. There are rules that we as a church, as a household of faith have in place to govern good and godly behavior. And often those rules within the church and those rules within the kingdom of God are able to testify whether or not your faith is true and real or whether or not you're just being merely outward in your Christian life and, and trying to be popular. Now, I asked the children this question, but what is God's highest rule for us? And we can think of many things, but God's highest rule for us is that whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And in that, we understand within that rule, that means that there is no way in the world that I can ever make a clear and expressed sin of Scripture Glorifying to God. There's no way you can do that. I think that's a message the church today really needs to hear. As we are dealing with all of the the societal things that are rising up and conflating Christianity at this time. That there is no way to take any sin and make it glorifying to God. It is offensive to him. But we can deal with people who are sinners in such a way that attains to that high rule and that will bring glory to God when we are kind and gracious, truthful, gentle, and yet standing for God's glory. Those are things that have to be learned. Well, it's interesting, at the close of this letter, Paul brings us to that very point about rule-keeping. He closes with this point, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He is really being somewhat 
if I, if I can put it this way, somewhat close-minded in who is going to be receiving this blessing that he is pronouncing. And he says, this is a blessing that is for those who walk according to this rule. And I want you to understand that those two words, walk and rule. It's not the same walk that we use when we say we're going out for a walk or a journey or something of that nature. It's a word that's used and is most commonly associated with the way a military regiment will walk or march together in unison, proceeding in an orderly fashion versus in an arbitrary manner. My son spent almost three years at St. Jean uh, doing in, as an instructor for uh, new recruits. And one of the things that they spent a lot of their time doing was learning to march together as one. It's that kind of idea that that word walk means. It's used very little in the New Testament, that particular Greek word. But it's saying walk in an orderly way. And that word rule, it's not like the rules of our homes in that here's a point to do or whatever. It's a word again that means about, about aligning yourself to a standard so that you will go straight. I've done some construction in our house and the one thing that always confounds my weak efforts at trying to take something and make it look new and fresh is the fact that the walls are not straight and the corners are not angled properly. And me as an unprofessional carpenter is always coming away with that, shall we say, uh, frustration of not being able to make things look good because the walls aren't straight. That's what that word rule means. Walk in a way that is straight in accordance with God. And that rule that Paul is talking about is what we read in verses 14 and 15. What we heard last week. That we walk as a people to whom the world has been crucified. And and we walk as a people who have been crucified to the world. We are separate from it. We are in it, but not of it. All of that language becomes the rule by which we work, we walk. And, and with that is at the end of verse 15, in that understanding, we are a new creation. We no longer walk as the old man, Adam. We walk as the new man, Jesus Christ. And in our lives, the old man of sin is being put to death. The new man of Christ is being brought forth in life. That's the rule by which we walk. A new creation. Let me ask you this. I don't know how many of you have owned a number of homes. We are particularly, I think, on our ninth or our tenth in our uh, somewhat 40 years of marriage. And whenever it comes to house hunting, we always have a very specific, what we're looking for. And and in God's grace, we've always been able to sort of upgrade as we go along. And I want you to think on this. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a home that on the outside is, is beautifully constructed and beautifully painted and landscaped 
But when you open the door and you come in, it's filled with dirt and clutter, almost to that extent that it's unlivable. Or would you have rather have the opposite? A house that on the inside is being made appealing and, and enabling to be lived in, while the outside may not necessarily look all that grand. Many times, if you're in the state of lifestyle that I am in, those, that's the real choice you're faced with. The Christian life is one where it is for us a work that has begun within us by God in the Holy Spirit that has to work itself from the inside out. Many try to make their life look like a Christian But no change has happened on the inside. And all they can do, as the Lord Jesus himself would say in Matthew 23, is be like a whitewashed tomb that appears beautiful on the outside, but inside is nothing more than dead man's bones and uncleanness. And there's many who walk that way in the pretense of Christianity. Are you such a one? It is easy. It is easy to fool the eyes of man. But you know, Jesus, when he spoke about that, he pronounced a woe. That is, he was saying, you are yet under God's judgment. It may be fine that you're living a more moral life. It may be fine that you're a good and upstanding citizen who's not really doing too much that's wrong. You can even follow some of the laws of God and show yourself to be kind and good. Unbelievers in their marriages can have better marriages than uh, Christians. Unbelievers can raise their children sometimes better than Christians. We're struggling in these things. We recognize that. But that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It's dealing with the work inside the heart. Outwardly, you can appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that warning is given because being a Christian is not a badge that we put on ourselves. It is not a mere profession. It is one who has experienced the life-cleansing, life-changing work of God through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Does that describe you? And you know how you can understand if you're walking according to that rule. Because scripture from both the Old and the New Testament has given us at least three points about that life. And these aren't the points that I'm going to be expounding for you with this passage. But they pertain to it. How do you live as a Christian? Habakkuk 2, Romans, uh, Galatians even. The justified. Live how? By faith. By faith. Those who have been forgiven of your sins, those of you who have been accepted by God as righteous, even though you are still struggling with sin, your life in Christ is first and foremost a life where you live by faith. You live by faith in Jesus Christ. 
That doesn't mean that you're not trying to do good things. But it does mean that you understand your goodness has nothing to do with your salvation. And that is a matter and a point that Paul, excuse me, has hammered home here time and time and time again. To be justified is to have that declaration of God upon you where he has pardoned your sins, removed the guilt and condemnation that has been over you as a sinner and has now accepted you as righteous in his sight because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you. And the only way you can receive that forgiveness and that acceptance by God is through faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. And thank God that's it. Because what can you do of yourself to gain pardon for even the smallest of sin that you commit? Remember that white lie that you told this past week? Or that careless look at another person that you had. Or that sinful thought that you had of someone. What can you do to wash away the stain of that sin? And say to God, here's what I've done to take away my guilt so that you can forgive me for that sin. What can you do? Nothing. Not one single thing. You may say, from now on, I'm not going to have those thoughts about that person. And you may move forward with that. But that hasn't even done anything to deal with that sin. The guilt of that sin is still there. You may have stolen money and say, okay, from now on, I'm not going to steal anymore. And I'm going to give what I can to people who are in need to compensate for what I've stole. But your, your good that you're doing from that point forward has done nothing to do with that sin. You may have said, well, from now on in my life, I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start renewing uh, my worship of God. But all that time before where you didn't think of God or worship God has not been compensated by you doing what you're doing even today. We cannot make any compensation for sin. We live by faith in Christ who has done all that is necessary to pay the penalty of our sins. His sacrifice wasn't a sacrifice for himself. He was without sin. He, in death, died a death he did not deserve because it was a death for us to deal with what we deserve, judgment and wrath from God. And the life that we now live is lived by faith in Christ. Yes, I'm going out to do some good things. But you know what? <laughs> I still fall short. I, I, I uh, just use an illustration. Uh, helping uh, a poor person. And, and in helping that poor person, it, it was a very good deed. It was something we're called to do. But you know how hard it was to keep it a good deed? Do you know how hard it was to fight in my mind that, oh, this person, if they just go out and get a job, they're only taking advantage of me. Hard to control those thoughts, isn't it? 
And, and I say that because it's so easy that with even the best of our deeds, sin attaches itself to them. That's why our goodness does not profit anything for our salvation. It is faith in Christ and Him alone. My friends, if you have not come to that place where you look unto Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not seen that His sacrifice is the payment for the penalty of your sins, and you have believed that He has taken away God's judgment, if you have not come to that place of believing in Christ, you are still in your sin. You are still under judgment. You are not. That's where it begins. I call you to believe on the Lord. And the life that you live from this point forward is a life of faith in Christ. But then there's living in the Spirit, what we've already heard from Galatians chapter 5. Live in the Spirit. And again, that was a message spoken to Israel back in Ezekiel. I will pour out my Spirit upon you and you will live in a righteous way. You will have the Spirit of God moving you away from your sin of idolatry. And Paul says the same thing to us. Walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so we live by the Spirit. Here's part of that rule that we're called to. And living by the Spirit is learning to, as we have been enabled by God, learning to demonstrate that presence of the Spirit by growing in love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and meekness or gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Living by the Spirit is learning to be like Jesus. And that's part of this whole rule. As many as walk according to this rule, the just who live by faith, the, the believer who lives in the Spirit, and last, that one who lives by the Word of God. Again, both in the Old and New Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Isn't it interesting? The denominations and churches who have fallen away from the truth. What is the very first thing that happens that opens the way for them to increasingly allow the worldliness of the world in? The very first thing they deal with is that age-old temptation and lie of the devil. Did God really say? And, and they begin it not by denying that the Bible is God's holy inerrant word. They begin by denying that it has authority in our lives over certain areas. And they begin to say, well, no, no. When Paul wrote that about women in office, we'll take that. That was just a cultural thing back in his day. Do you know they're saying the same thing about homosexuality today? It's just a cultural thing. But that, that's the way into denying the authority of God's word. And when you do that, then the word itself is no longer inspired because it's not just one point that needs to be changed to accommodate us. It's several points. And so you start saying, no, that's not inspired. That's not really the word of God. Men wrote the Bible and we need to think for ourselves. And that, that's, that's the degrading of the word of God. What does God in his words say about those who are his children. You live 
by my word. You live by my word. Every word that proceeds from my mouth is given to you. Yes, even those genealogies that we never read those names. We just, okay, where does this end? We get to, it's all the inspired word of God. And the Lord himself lived out this life. He lived in accordance to this rule and standard. And what, in in the time we have left, what I want you to see is that according as many, whoever walks according to this rule, who lives by faith, who lives in the spirit, and who lives in accordance with God's word, peace, mercy, be upon them and upon the Israel of God. God has blessing for you. And I think it's a beautiful way to close out this series to seeing that we who walk according to this word, this rule, sorry, we have blessings. And the first is God's goodness that is promised to us. Those who walk according to this rule have two parts of God's goodness promised to be upon them in your life. Something that God himself will bless you with even though you may not know he's blessing you with it. That's the amazing thing about a lot of God's goodness. We don't see the fullness of it at work in our lives until after things unfold. And we look back and we say, wow, you know, God was really with me, giving me peace in that circumstance or helping me with mercy. It's God's goodness that's promised and it's upon us in spite of, in this keeping in context here, in spite of the hate and the afflictions that you experience from the world that's trying to make you think that God is not being good to you. You walk according to this rule, God's goodness is there. And the world can't prevent God from being good to you. <laughs> and peace is the big thing. And, and see how it relates To that rule of living by faith and living in the spirit and living by God's word. You have peace. You have peace with God. Being justified. Again, that word justified. Being pardoned of all your sins and accepted by God. To be able to live today, even as young children. With the knowledge that when you come to God in Christ and you say, Father, forgive me for this sin. What do we hear? The goodness of God. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. I've washed it clean from you. And the peace of God comes and meets us. Why is it that when we ask for forgiveness from God, that we can rise up from that time of petitioning God, please forgive me for the more grievous sins that we focus on. That we can rise up and we have that sense of peace in our hearts. That's God ministering his goodness. Saying you're forgiven. We have a peace that passes all understanding. Because God is dealing with us. Not as a judge. But as a father. (laughs) That's one of the great things children. I hope you learn in your homes as much as you have rules to follow and you think they're hard, understand, mom, dad, they're dealing with you as their children. You're not a stranger. You're not an outcast. God, the same way, is treating us as a father. 
We understand in dealing with us as his children that there's nothing. We have a peace that passes all understanding that speaks to our hearts that great and glorious truth that nothing will separate me from the Father's love in Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. I don't know how many times that has been a joy, an assurance of my heart. And mercy. Mercy. An extension of God's goodness. Unlike this unforgiving culture of our day. <laughs> my. I know we've done it and seen it in many circles. I heard this last week again of another instance. But how many times when somebody is trying to run in a leadership position. Does somebody go and try to dig up something from their past. Maybe from their youthful days. And hold it against them and say, no, this man can't go forward. He did this in this past. And what's, what's the f- refrain that comes from that? They did it once. I cannot trust them that they won't do it again. How many times have you heard that? That's an unforgiving culture we live in. God's mercy is not like that. Praise God, his mercy is not like that. God's mercy is true and faithful. With God... Understand this, dear Christian. When you walk according to this rule with God, His mercy is so faithful that there is never a moment in your life where you do not have an interest in the Savior's love. Isn't that grand? Never a moment. There's never a moment when the loving kindness of the Father is too far away from you. That's what I love about the story of the prodigal sons. There were two sons. That were prodigal. Always remember that. One just looked like he was obedient. But what did he do for the one that was evidently disobedient? (laughs) The father could see him coming from afar. He was looking for him to return. (laughs) Even in our disobedience, the mercy of God is like that loving kindness of a father waiting and expecting his son to return. That's how God is with us. Of course, Psalm 103, one of the most precious psalms, I think, to my own heart anyways. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why? Because he forgives, he heals, he hasn't dealt with me as my sins deserve. He's removed my iniquity far from me. He has pitied me. He's been like a father to me. He knows that I'm a man of dust. Struggling with sin. And yet, his love never fails. God's goodness is to you who walk according to this rule. And it's also the way that God's people are known. The Israel of God as he speaks there. What marks true Christians in this world? Think about that for a moment. Because in Paul's day, what he's argued throughout this whole letter is there was this group within the church that says, what marks us as Christians is if we have done this and done this and done this and done this and done this. And if you can check off that list, then we'll accept you as a Christian. And they were trying to enforce many rules and regulations that had been fulfilled by Christ and were no longer necessary for the church. 
That's why Paul uses this phrase, the Israel of God. God's people are known not by what they do, but in whom they believe and walk. And he's already said that if you go back to Galatians 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs according to the promise. You're the Israel of God. But what are the marks? What are the marks that Paul speaks of in verse 17? From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting again, that word mark. You know what the Greek word is? You'll know it. I'll, I'll teach you a little bit of Greek this morning. Stigma. <laughs> Stigma. We use that sometimes, don't we? We use it more in, I think, a harsh way. I don't want to be stigmatized. <laughs> I don't want to be counted with them because of the marks that they bear. But that's the word here. I bear the stigma of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> I bear it in my flesh. Another Greek general and politician about 350 years before Christ said this about his troops. What, mar what marks a soldier? What marks a soldier? is Pericles. Some of you may know the name Pericles. He said this, It is not gold or precious stones or statues that adorn a soldier, but a torn buckler, a cracked helmet, a blunt sword, and a scarred face. <laughs> this is a soldier. And when Paul talks about bearing the marks of the Lord Jesus, he's talking about it, that experience of persecution from the world because he's walking according to the rule. He's already said in, in this letter, he said that one of the reasons why people don't want to walk according to this rule is because they're ashamed of the persecution that they will be faced with. It's a reality. The church is not of this world. Dear Christian, your citizenship is in heaven, though you live here on earth. And we are a people who live in countercultural ways to the society that is around us. We can't help because we are bearing the marks of Christ. Persecution is something that marks God's people. It's one of the ways that we are known in this world. Paul, he would say in Colossians 1, he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And what he says there is something that all of us as Christians are called to take to heart. That Jesus Christ suffered. And he suffered at the hands of cruel men, at the hands of Pontius Pilate and King Herod and the Gentiles and even the godlessness of the people of Israel. He suffered and died at their hands. Why? To bear the penalty of our sins to bring forth the fullness of our salvation. And when Paul speaks about filling up in his flesh what was lacking in those afflictions, he isn't saying Christ's death and sufferings were insufficient. What he is saying is that every generation of God's people are going to be experiencing the sufferings and persecutions of Christ 
from this world so that the truth of what Jesus did may bring forth the blessing of the gospel to those who are outside. That's a reality of the life that we live. And why do we do this? Why do we make ourselves not, we don't go out seeking it, but we make ourselves uh, open to that persecution of the world? Well, listen to what Paul says again. And again, this is God's holy word to us. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. I do this for the church. God's people are known by those who are in the church, suffering for the sake of one another. Think about this with Christ. Besides the Father and his glory, whom does Jesus love the most? It's his church. It's you, dear Christians. Why did Jesus Christ bear those marks in his flesh? To save, to sanctify his church. He loved the church. And what Paul is saying here is, if you want proof of my love for Christ, If you want proof of my love for Christ, then look at what I have suffered for the sake of his body, the church. My friends, there is a thing to count. Do you love the church? How are God's people known? Our love for Christ translates into a love for his body. And that that suffering that we experience, that identifies us with Christ fills up the love for God's people. We don't suffer for the sake of suffering. We experience persecution and afflictions and other things so that we can build up the love of God's people. We don't think like that, do we? Most times when we start experiencing afflictions and troubles and persecution and tribulation, we think of ourselves. Why me, Lord? Part of the reason is we're enduring these things to demonstrate God's goodness and glory to those who are around us in the church. We don't live disconnected from one another. That's how God's people are known. And didn't Jesus say that? Again, how will the world know that you are his disciples? It comes back to that often, doesn't it? By our love for one another. And lastly... Not only is God's goodness promised and God's people are known, but God's blessing, God's benediction is given. And very quickly, just to close with verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, the grace of God, the grace of the Lord, love of a holy God to an unworthy sinner. May that grace be to you. But look look at Just look at how that blessing is given. Be with your spirit. Did you notice that that word your, it's plural, it's saying to all of you. May it be with your spirit. But the word spirit is singular. I know this is grammar language, but it's important here. Because what he's saying here is God wants to bless you all as one. He wants to bless you all together where the whole body is embraced in this grace of the Lord Jesus. 
My friends, that grace of the Lord Jesus carries us every day. The just who live by faith, who live in the Spirit, who live in accordance with God's word, when we do this together as God's people, that undeserved love and kindness of a Savior is upon us, upon us as a whole. Do you experience those blessings? It's like saying, you've come to church today, and you go home very soon. (laughs) Are you going home with joy because we have been together in the presence of God, being blessed by him? Know these. This is what God wants to give you. Walk according to his rule. Peace and mercy. Grace. That's what's waiting for.